1 this morning. It says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. The Lord judged between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. You shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. For the well was called Be'er Leheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Man, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You know the amazing thing, and I've mentioned it before, but the amazing thing about the Bible is when you read it, it never, never tries to cover up or paint over the faults and failures of the characters that are in the text. You think about most stories or narratives of a heroic figure, oftentimes The mistakes, the failures are airbrushed over. They're kind of swept under the rug. The idea of George Washington being this wonderful guy and heroic general kind of swept under the rug. The mistakes and failures 
not just him, Abraham Lincoln, others throughout American history that we've kind of put on a shelf. A lot of times that's our tendency to do that, to lift somebody up and, and to just fail to mention all of the mistakes. But of course that's not so in the Bible. The Bible shows it all to us. For every heroic exploit of David and for his promise of receiving an eternal throne from God, we also realize that David is a man who committed murder against one of his best generals, had an affair with his wife. And here in Abraham's story for all of the the blessings, the goodness that we think of as Father Abraham and the father of the Jewish people, we still see a man who is struggling and failing many times in his life. And this is the point here when we look at this chapter, chapter 16. Last week I mentioned, and I made the case that Genesis 15 is it's really one of the seminal chapters in the Bible, and it is. The doctrine of justification by faith is the key to our understanding of the work of God. The fact that we believe in God and God justifies us. He counts us as righteous. He imputes His righteousness to us is the cornerstone of what we believe as Christians. And that Cornerstone is laid way back in Genesis 15 when Abram believes God and God counts his faith as righteousness. But we have to remember that for all of Abram's heroics, all of his heroism, for all of his good things, Abram is still a man. He is still a person. He is a person. Many faults and many failures, and unfortunately, the person who fully, or struggles, I should say, to fully trust God. And so when we read this chapter, it serves as a, as a wake-up call to you and I. Wake-up call to understand the, the dangers of failing to trust God. The dangers of failing to fully lean upon Him and deciding that we are going to do things our way and live our life without Him. When we decide to veer off the path that God has chosen for us and, and choose the road that God has marked out for us and to go the way that God wants us to go, it always, always takes us down a road we don't want. To follow. But thankfully, this morning it does not just end there with the fact that God shows us the dangers of failing to trust Him. It also, in this chapter, reminds us that even when we fail, even when we fall, even when we make mistakes, God is still faithful. And God is still there. And God still sees us even in our weakest times in life. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like 
that God has abandoned you, that God has left you. Maybe it's your sins, maybe it's your mistakes, maybe it's the fact that things aren't going the way that you think they should in life, and you're sitting there wondering, does God really know who I am? Does He know where I am? Does God really care about me? The answer to that question, as we will see in this chapter, is that yes, God does care. God does see you this morning. And so we get into this chapter this morning and we notice, first of all, a failure. A failure to see as God sees. The failure in Abram and Sarah, Sarai, I should say, to, to see as God sees and to see what God sees. This is the heart of the problem. We, we fail to see as God does. We fail to understand the plan and purposes of God. And, and more importantly, we fail to trust Him when God doesn't reveal His plans and purposes. Abram and Sarai being individuals just like you and I are. They're sitting there and waiting for God to fulfill His purposes and His plans. And, and it doesn't happen. And they fail to understand that God knows what He is doing. That He is in control. That He is watching over their lives. Look at what happens here in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. We go down to verse 3 and we're told that Abram and Sarai had lived in Canaan for 10 years. Whether this was 10 years from the journey out of her or 10 years from when they were in Egypt in chapter 14, we're, we're, we're not real sure. But the fact is, Sarai's time to conceive and bear children are running out. In fact, we know she's about 10 years younger than Abram. And we're told at the end of chapter 16 that Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So you can do the math. She's 76 years old. And although things were a little bit different back then, and the fact is it was coming to be more and more in line with what we are used to in our culture with age and everything else. And it's, it's becoming clear, however you want to say it, that, that Sarai is, is becoming incapable of having these children on their own. And so what do they do? Well, Sarai has a personal servant. She has a female Egyptian servant, no doubt given to the family from their time in Egypt. This servant girl, Hagar, was, was probably her personal attendant who looked after Sarai, who cared for her in a personal basis. And, and so Sarai decides that Abram should have a surrogate relationship with her and that Abram would acquire his son through this act of surrogacy. It's not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. You can probably recall that Rachel and Leah did the same thing to Abram's great-grandson, Jacob, when... They were struggling to have children and God was fulfilling the 12 tribes of Israel. What did they do? Rachel and Leah were, were, were not only conceiving their own children, or Leah especially, but Rachel, when she couldn't have any, was giving Jacob her concubine, her, her servant, to be his concubine. And he was having children not just through 
Leah and eventually Rachel, but also through their servants. Surrogacy was a common practice in the ancient world, and even today, it is a situation. I was listening to a news podcast this week where they're talking about how the situation in Ukraine was disrupting the adoption and surrogate mother business. And the individuals from other nations would, would use the nation of Ukraine to either adopt a child or to have a surrogate child being born through a surrogate mother over there in Ukraine. And now with destruction and devastation that is happening, business has been interrupted. And of course, here we are, right, thousands of years later and little, little changes in human society. And so even though IVF technology or whatever we have today to help couples who are incapable of having children, that technology did not exist. This concept of surrogacy exists, and Sarai thinks this is a good approach. Verse 2, Sarai says to Abram, Behold now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It might be that I will obtain children by her. Those last words there should not be overlooked. Abram, listen. Listen to the voice of Sarai. As you read those last words, particularly your mind, should go back to Genesis chapter number 3, shouldn't it? Narrative is so reminiscent of the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve hear a distortion of the Word of God. They're made to challenge. They're made to question whether or not God had actually said what He said, whether or not God actually meant what He said. And all of a sudden, they stop listening to God. They start listening to voices that are not from God. And you can understand, maybe, maybe you can even understand in the case of Sarai and Abram, after all, God had made the promise to Abram, you will have a, a son, You're, you will bear a child. He never really said that it was going to be Abram and Sarai, did he? I mean, even though Hagar was not around in Genesis 12 when, when this promise first came forward, still God, God technically never said that Sarai was going to be the one to give you this child, and so if Abram impregnates Hagar, what does it matter? It still counts. It's still his son. See, just a little, little bit of distortion, a little bit of a twisting of the Word of God. The path of one goes down when they doubt and fail to trust what God has declared. So look what happens. Verse 3, so after Abram, Lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian servant. He gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife, and went into Hagar, and she conceived. She saw that she had conceived. She looked upon Sarai, her mistress, with contempt. Ten years has gone by. Sarai is at the point, perhaps past the point of being able to naturally conceive. And the plan for Abram to have a child is, is put in motion. Take Hagar, go into her, have children through her. And even though we're not told how many times Abram and Hagar engage in relationships with each other, obviously the plan 
works out. Time comes and Hagar realizes something is happening inside of her. But notice the last part of that fourth verse. When Hagar realizes she is pregnant. She begins to look with contempt upon Sarai. She begins to look down upon her. I've read several commentaries this week and some may think it's just a matter of her realizing that she could conceive while Sarai couldn't. Some, some are thinking that maybe Hagar is thinking in the back of her mind that she's going to be the main wife. She's going to be the top person in the household because she's carrying the master's child. But whatever her heart's motivation is, she's acting out of a, a natural impulse. I have something that you don't have. Something that you desperately desperately want and you can understand that we've been there before right our children have been there before one of them is working so hard for something the other child takes what that child wants so much and you can see the the tension that goes on there you can see the the fighting that goes on here is exactly the same thing. Hagar is pregnant, Sarai is not. She got pregnant rather easily. Sarai has been incapable of getting pregnant despite the years and years of trying, the friction, the jealousy, the anger. So thick you can cut it with a knife. And look at what happens in verses 5. And six, Sarai says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Interesting words there, ain't it? Because she's the one who went to Abram and said, Let's have a child through Hagar. So I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Not my fault, Abram. You should have known better than to get Hagar pregnant. All right, you know, it's, I'm sure human biology was pretty well figured out by the time they were on earth, and we don't need to have the understanding that we have today. Should have known that was going to happen if you went in and had a relationship with her. It's your fault. Here we are, the, the shifting of blame, the equivocating, the, the, the judge you, God judge between you and me because this should never have happened. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold your servant. Your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled. She fled from her. The tension is so high that Sarai realizes how bad her mistake was. Imagine this, this lady coming into your room to help you get dressed or to help you draw your bath or whatever the case is. And, and then all of a sudden she's incapable because, you know, she's uncomfortable. She's got morning sickness herself to deal with. This big bulge that is so evident in her belly reminding Sarai, hey, this has happened and it's not happened to you like you wanted to. It's your fault, Abram. She despises me. 
Abram acquiesces to her demands and pleads and tells her she can do with Hagar what she thinks is best. He already knows that this is a mistake in getting Hagar pregnant. Concludes the best way to handle this is to let Sarai do what she will and to kick Hagar out of the house. And the point is not to discuss the feuding and fighting between Sarai and Hagar. Rather, it is to consider how did they get there in the first place? How did they get there? And the reason they got there is because Abram has failed to trust God. He has failed to fully trust what God said he was going to do. He fails to see who God is and that God will do what God has said he will do. And he falters because God is not moving on his time frame. Even though in the last chapter he is commended for his faith in God. And this is where we find ourselves so many times, don't we? We want to believe God. We want to believe what the Bible says. We want to believe what the Word of God has declared to us through the pages of Scripture. And yet at oftentimes it becomes so, so difficult. Become so hard to actually believe this. The struggle is there over and over and over again. And we wrestle with the doubt and the question. We wrestle with the struggle of, of really believing that God can do what He said He is going to do. I mentioned there at the beginning of the service how in Paul speaks to the Corinthian church of giving. He talks about their generosity and he talks about how God is able to supply to them in their time of need. And so many of us give as unto God and we give to the Lord and yet, yet we find ourselves struggling and we wonder, God, are you really going to do what you said? You are going to do. You see, the life of faith is not necessarily the life of ease and comfort. So many times we are told, and so many times we have it in our mindset, especially as Americans, the world and in a society where things have been so good for us for so long. And we're told by snake oil salesmen, on television or on the internet or wherever they are, these charlatans, that if you would just follow God, everything in your life will all work out exactly as you want it to. And when things don't, we find ourselves struggling over and over again, don't we? Why hasn't God done what they said God was going to do in my life? Paul writes to the Corinthian church again in the second letter in chapter 5 this time. 
He says these words. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We like those words. We trust in those words. We believe those words. We sing about those words. We talk about how we are walking this road by faith. But let's think of it for a moment why Paul said those words. You go back to the first verse of this chapter in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, so Paul is telling us that when this fleshly body dies, then we have an eternal body. Okay, good. We can accept that, right? Because we're all going to be 120 when we die, and we're all going to be wonderful, and we're just going to go to sleep at night and never wake up, and life will be great. Let's go back a little bit further. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is this treasure? It's the treasure of the hope of the gospel. Paul says it is found in jars of clay. In fragile, broken jars that shatter so easily. And what does Paul say in verse 8 of chapter 4? He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, a life in you. What is Paul saying here? He's saying the life he is living is a life of hardship and pain, persecution and struggle. He is going through untold horrors to get the gospel out. And he mentions them there in later parts of Corinthians. He's thrown and shipwrecked a number of times, spent a day and a half in the sea, not knowing whether or not he would survive. He was beaten several times. He was imprisoned and left for dead over and over and over again. Paul's life is not an easy life. It is a difficult life. And in verses 13 and 15 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, Paul states that he believes that the same God who raised Christ from the dead will raise him. 
He believes that his life is going to be made new. But while he is here on earth, the death of Christ is always being shown in his body. It's a life of hardship, of pain, of trouble and trial. And yet Paul said, I walk by faith. I walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, I still trust that God is going to do what he said he is going to do. Even when I don't understand. This is what we need to see because far too many of us have already said, We think that faith is some magic pill that if we just take it enough, we'll be healthy, we'll be whole, everyone will be healed and better. Life will be wonderful. The fact of the matter is it's not. Sometimes the journey of faith is laden with hardships and difficulties. Sometimes it's laden with sorrow and disappointment. If God told me I was going to be the father of a nation, I'd be calling all the contractors I know and saying, hey, I've got to have some more rooms on my house. I'm going to have lots of kids. I mean, Mary would probably jump in the car and take off and drive the other side of the world. And here I am being told I'm going to, I'm going to have a father of many nations and all kinds of children and 20 turns into 30, turns into 40, turns into 50 and 60. All of a sudden, that biological clock that's inside of us just doesn't work like it used to. You see, this is the point. Just because we see with our eyes and we say there is no way does not mean that God has not promised. That God has not declared. That God has not said what He is going to do. I should make the point your faith needs to be grounded in the Word of God again, not a not a charlatan, not a snake oil salesman that tells you something. It thus saith the Lord, if you cannot point to it, from the pages of this scripture, you need to be wary because there's a lot of people that are saying God is speaking to them and when it doesn't happen, God speaks to them in a different way. And people keep giving them money and they still prosper off of Naivety to so many people, but if God has declared something in His Word, you have to remain, you have to hold on, you have to believe in the promise of God despite the pain and hardship that is in your life, despite the fact that it seems to be no way possible. Where Abram failed was that he somewhere stopped believing and trusting in what God had told him. Abram stopped following God. He started going his own path. And he wound up with a far bigger mistake in his life than he ever wanted to have. 
But you have to ask yourself the question this morning, am I willing to trust God to be faithful to God when everything in my life falls apart? I mentioned it some weeks ago, but I was so stirred when I was listening to the voice of the martyrs one time. And they were talking about how these Muslim followers of Jesus, once they become baptized, their life, their family is over. It's over for them. Their family cuts them off. Their family kicks them out. And we think, how can that be a a result of following God? And, And I don't understand it, but it is. And yet when they realize that Jesus is the way and the truth and the light, they're willing to give up everything. Abram failed, but here's the good thing to see in this passage. That is, secondly, the point this morning is this, the reminder, the reminder that God sees us, even in our lowest points. The reminder that even though Abram failed, that Sarai failed, that Hagar finds herself the victim of Abram's and Sarai's mistakes, fact of the matter is God had not abandoned her. God had not left her. God had not deserted her and her life. Abram's in a world of her. Now Hagar's alone. No one's out there to care for her, to look after her. Pregnancy is upon her and this new baby. She has no way to care for her. And look at what happens, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. Found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Angel of the Lord refers here to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a Christophany, a theophany, if you would. Christ shows up to her and he asks Hagar, verse 8, what, what's going on? What are you doing? Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. I'm running. God tells her to go back. Go back. And what we need to see here is in the words of verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael. Because God has listened to your affliction. And we know from Paul's writing in Galatians that Ishmael is the one that Paul uses to contrast the works of the flesh and the work of the Spirit. That's where later on we'll talk about that here in a few weeks. What matters now is the meaning of Ishmael's name, which is this, God hears. God hears. The Lord is reminding Hagar in this verse, go back because God has heard you. God is listening to your prayers. God is listening to the cries of your heart. It's not just verse 11. Look at verses 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. El Roy, the God who sees. 
For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the name was called Beer Leheroi, the place, the well where God has seen. What is going on here is that God is reminding Hagar and ultimately, by extension, Abram and Sarai, as she comes back, that despite their failures, despite the lack of faith, despite their lack of trust in God, God still sees them where they are. God has not abandoned them. God has not left them alone. God has not deserted them, even though it seems like their world is falling apart. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about this verse. It says, often in Genesis, popular etymologies capture the message. These are rhetorical devices that draw the account or draw from the account the explanation of names. Thus, the name was a mnemonic device for remembering the events and their significance. In this passage, two popular etymologies form not only the climax of the section, But the point of the whole unit, God himself named the boy Ishmael, which God then explained, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Clearly God meant this for Hagar, but he also meant it for Abram and Sarai. They go on, they say the other naming was Hagar's referring to God as the one who sees after her, that is, looks out for her. So in these two names, a world of theology, God hears and God sees. This place would afterward become holy. A place where God could be found providing for and hearing the cries of his people. The names reflect the message God spoke in direct revelation and Hagar responded in faith. God sees the strict distress and affliction and he hears. Sarai should have known this. Since God knew Sarai was barren, she should have cried out to the Lord. Instead, she tried to learn a lesson the hard way. From the experience of a despised slave wife who ironically came back with a faith experience. How Abram must have been rebuked when Hagar said God told her to name her son Ishmael. God hears. God hears. See, this is the hope. This is the the good news in the midst of struggle and trial. The fact that God has not abandoned us, that God has not forsaken us, that God does not leave us on our own, even in our lowest points of life, but instead He hears the cries of the brokenhearted. He hears the prayers of the desperate. He sees the lonely, the outcast, the wanderer, the one that nobody else seems to see or understand. The writer finishes by saying this, in great distress, here in this case being Sarai's barrenness, one must turn to the Lord. Because God hears the afflicted, He sees them in their need, and He will miraculously fulfill His promises. 
they cannot be turned by human invention. This is what we have to understand and we have to get a hold of today. See, Paul explains it to us later on in Romans when he said God wanted to wait till Sarai Sarah was good and dead and Abram was incapable of having a child. God wanted to wait so that they would understand that the promise came not through human interaction or human work, but it came simply by divine intervention. Sometimes what God is doing in our life is bringing us to the place where we have to understand that anything that happens comes only from God. It is not of us. Nothing we can do. This is what we need to do. We need to trust God. We need to follow what God has revealed in His Word. We cannot follow what we see in our circumstances, what we hear with our ears, or we see with our eyes. We have to trust in the plans and purposes of God. Despite what is happening in our lives. I wish I had thought about it, but in that book, Gentle and Lowly, that we're going through on Thursdays and others, hopefully you've taken one home and read it, but writer in chapter 6 or 7 we went over this last week he quotes he copies from John Bunyan the great Puritan writer the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and in another book that John Bunyan had written he he, he made up all these excuses why God would not hear and forgive him why God would where Christ would not accept him and Every time at the end of his excuse, Bunyan would answer with a reply, no, God does hear, God does understand, God does comfort, God does see, God does forgive. See, these are, this is what we have to trust and this is what we have to believe in. We look around at circumstances and we say, there is no way. And yet God is looking at us and saying, I am the way. You can trust me. So when you're looking at the end of your rope and you're saying there's no way that we can meet the need, God says, I am your provider. We look at the sickness and the cancer and we say there's no way that God can do anything. God says, I am your healer. We look at our loved one who is so sinful and so lost and so bound in their wickedness. Say, there's no way, and God says, I am the one who saves. We look at the impossibility of our mountain, and God is looking at us and saying, I am the one who's able to move mountains into the midst of the sea. God is looking at us and saying, trust me. Trust me. I am sovereign. I am watching over your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe or trust that God can forgive you of your sins. 
Again, John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. And he will forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Yeah, but you're talking about blasphemy. God, God is faithful. He'll forgive you. You're talking about adultery. God is faithful. He'll forgive you. You're talking about murder. God is faithful. He will forgive you. And you're talking about insurrection and treason and whatever else we can think of, a high crimes and misdemeanors, whatever we call it in our government. God is faithful. God will forgive you. Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you trust in the sovereign hand of God in your life? And let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, I understand fully how how things are supposed to work. Understand that a young man and young woman get married and they're in the prime of life, they have children and it's the way it's worked beyond end. I don't understand how you can take a lady that's 90 years old, who's passed the age of child rearing and bring a child. But God, you did it. You promised to Abraham and you fulfilled your word. Now, Lord, you have promised to us The scriptures tell us what the scriptures have written. And Lord, I confess this morning, I don't follow them. I fail, I mess up. I try to do things my own way. I try to order my life my own direction. And every time I wind up with a mistake, every time I wind up with a mess. I'm so glad in those weakness and those pain and that heartache. You look down and say, I still see you. My hand is still on your life. You can still trust me. You can still follow me. You still hear my cries when they're they're brought to you. You're still watching over my life. Thank you for hearing Thank you for seeing. Thank you for always working, we pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. And God sees you this